I'm uh, stepping in now to a series that is on stewardship. And uh, for some reason, they assigned me money. Those of you that know I'm an accountant understand that. Um, we're going to talk about what God says about money and the stewardship of money. And um, my assumption here tonight is that you're all saved. But I want you to know that I understand that maybe not everybody is saved. And the great hope of the scripture, the great hope of God's truth is that in obedience, there is great peace and there is great comfort and there's tremendous wisdom outside of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There might be great frustration as you hear this and you say, I can't live up to any of that. And in some sense, I hope that's your response because I want to help you tonight. Um, Any number of us would love to help show you the truth of the gospel. So as we approach the the topic tonight, um, I just want you to know that my hope is that this is encouraging to you, that you um, hear from Scripture the answers um, to many of the questions that some of you might have about money. In 2014, A man was severely injured in a sheriff's department cruiser here in Southern California while he was being transported to jail. That man is now a paraplegic. And in January 2015, he received a settlement from the county in the amount of $4 million to be held in trust in a trust account protected by his attorney for his medical bills for the rest of his life. His attorney lied to his client about receiving the settlement and told him it was still pending and within six months had spent all of the $4 million. Then two years later in January 2017, this same attorney here in Southern California won a lawsuit on behalf of another client and deposited the $2,750,000 proceeds into his trust account. And a year later, he did the same thing with the settlement for another client's. And again in 2018, another client in the amount of $8 million. And he spent it all. His clients never got any of that. But by now in 2018, he's attracting high-profile clients. He's considered a successful lawyer. He's in the circles of the very rich, living a fast life, and has become a celebrity up-and-coming political prospect. In fact, between March and April of 2018, a 64-day span, he was featured on cable news programs on CNN and MSNBC 108 times. It was during this time that one of the political parties began talking about this attorney as a potential presidential candidate in 2020. It was a classic case of ascribing intellectual and moral credit to a guy just because he appeared to be rich. And he was rich. In the midst of all of this, he left his wife and started living with another woman. Then he was arrested for physically abusing that woman. Then he signed a very high-profile woman as a client. She was suing the president of the United States, a president that he hated so much, and he saw another opportunity to grift. She lost her case, but she signed a book deal. And got a very, very large advance. And you guessed it, he stole that too. But this client was not one to sit quietly and she had a huge media presence. So she started blowing the whistle and the media completely ignored her, as did law enforcement, because of the reputation of her attorney. He was wealthy and successful after all. 
Around the same time, that attorney attempted to extort millions of dollars from Nike. He's a busy guy, isn't he? His attempt was so brazen that he didn't notice that the whole thing was being recorded. He was finally going to be exposed, and Nike did that. In March 2019, a 36-count indictment was handed down alleging tax fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, bankruptcy fraud. And two months later, he was indicted again for embezzlement and extortion for all the clients whose money he had stolen. And he was convicted for all of it. Not a very good steward, was he? He had one job. Receive the money for his clients and hold it in a trust until ordered distribution by the court. And he took almost all of it for himself. But even with all this money, he couldn't manage it. He ended up in bankruptcy court. He was forced to file for bankruptcy. Was, uh, I think that was uh, $16 million total. Wasn't enough. He viola- violated the trust of his clients. He violated the trust of the courts. And not unconnected to any of that, he was eventually exposed as an adulterer, a violent man, a thief, a swindler, a liar, a perjurer. He abandoned his wife and child in every way, including financially, and pretty much violated every vow or promise he had ever made. He was also exposed in another matter for illegally obtaining and distributing the private information of a man he hated, and the person that he got that information from was an IRS agent who also went to jail. He bribed the IRS agent to get this information. And he planted and manipulated blatantly false testimony against a prospective Supreme Court justice. Who was this future president? Michael Avenatti. You may have seen him on the news one of those 108 times. He was sentenced and jailed for several years and is currently in prison. The fact that he was so irresponsible and evil and his handling of other people's money was simply a window into the character and the conduct of the rest of his life. You see, money exposes character. How money is handled is an indication of the morality and the fidelity that will be found in other areas of life. This is true of all kinds of white-collar criminals, like Bernie Madoff. Isn't that a great name for what Bernie Madoff did? Bernie Madoff with billions. And Charles Ponzi, whose legacy is what we all know as a Ponzi scheme. But that principle is also true for you and me. How someone cares and protects, cares for and protects someone else's money is not really that big of a test. At least it's not supposed to be. The choices and the decisions that are before someone handling another person's money as a steward, as a trustee, as a fiduciary are pretty clear and stark. The owner of the money ultimately has the power of authorization and accountability. Mr. Avenatti and men like him cross so many obvious and bright lines that Avenatti in particular is really set apart in the audacity and the boldness of his crimes and the utter moral failures in responsibility where it's not all that difficult to know right from wrong. So tonight, I'm not going to focus on handling other people's money. Tonight, I want to talk about how you um, view and steward your own money in the privacy of your own life. 
I know, because I've done this a few times and given what I do for a living, that money is an area that is private, it's personal, but it's also as telling of who you are and how you view God. Money, wealth, riches is mentioned in the Bible at least 300 times. The lack of money, poverty, need and want is mentioned 200 times. So money is a ubiquitous theme in the Bible. And in all of that, it's really important to understand that money itself is amoral. It has no moral quality in and of itself. It sits in your wallet. I'm dating myself when I say that. I know nobody walks around with cash anymore. But it sits in your wallet or in your investment account or in your bank account And it is neither good nor bad. By itself, it cannot do good things and it cannot do bad things. But how it's handled and and considered and thought about exposes the good, the bad, and sometimes the really ugly. We're talking about stewardship. Steward, when it comes to money, is someone who is a manager, maybe an administrator, a protector, a caretaker, a steward recognizes the true ownership of the asset and the responsibility to guard and protect and to use that asset as only as it has been authorized by the owner. Someone who fills the role of a steward or a trustee or a fiduciary has the responsibility to act like an owner even though they don't own any of it. So tonight, from Scripture, I want to show you that the faithful steward of money is not obsessed or preoccupied with money. A faithful steward trusts in the providence of God. A faithful steward is content. A faithful steward of, we're talking about your own money, is above reproach, has integrity, A faithful steward, the Bible says, has a healthy ambition about acquiring money. Did you know that? The Bible expects that you and I have an ambition about acquiring money and a faithful steward prays about the handling of their money. So let's go through those um, in some detail. First, a steward of God's money is not obsessed with money. You might think this hurts an accountant to say it, but it doesn't. A faithful steward is not obsessed or preoccupied with money. Have you ever thought about what is the definition of money? What is money? Well, for a long time, the definition has been that money is a tangible means of exchanging what I have for what I want. It's a medium of exchange to convert something that I want or need into something that I have. Now, I say that the long-time definition, when I say a tangible means, we're quickly moving to a culture where it's not going to be tangible. That's a whole other topic. But that's it. It's a tool to facilitate commerce. For example, it is a convenient means to convert effort, work, into food. Most of you don't have farms at your house, do you? 
but you need to eat. And money is a means to convert your work into food. It should not be seen as any different than that, nor should we ascribe any moral or ethical qualities or indicators to money. A fascination with money, therefore, is wrong. A life goal of getting rich is a rotten tree from which comes all sorts of rotten and evil fruits. The Bible says that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, that verse is often misquoted, that money is the root of all evil. You ever heard that? That is not what that verse says. It says the love of money, the obsession with money, the fascination with money, the pursuit of money at the expense of all else is a root, not the root, not the only root, but it is a root of all kinds of evil, all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for money, have wandered from the faith. That should scare you. That should be a motivation. That should be clarity for you and I to understand we should not be obsessed or preoccupied with money. You see, a preoccupation with money takes our eyes off of who we should be preoccupied with, which is Jesus Christ. By that preoccupation, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that passage goes on to talk about those griefs, and we're not going to spend a lot of time or any time on that. You can read that at your leisure, but it is graphic. The difficulties and the dangers of being obsessed with money, being in love with money. So what about those who are poor, those of us who are poor or rich, how are we to think about that? That takes us to our second point, that a steward of God's money trusts in the providence of God. Trusts in the providence of God. Whatever money you have, it has been given to you. Whatever money you do not have has been withheld from you. Let me say that again. Whatever money you have has been given to you. Whatever money you do not have that you wish you had has actually been withheld from you by God. And that's why we say that a steward of money, of God's money, is um, trust in the providence of God and takes comfort in the providence of God. In other words, you're a steward, a caretaker of money that's been given to you. Whatever you have has been given to you and the one who gave it to you has the power of authority and accountability. In other words, he dictates how you use money and he is the one to whom you are accountable for using that money exactly how he says. It's the Lord's. Now, what about rich and poor? When we talk about the providence of God, probably the most succinct, I can't imagine saying it in more more concise language than in 1 Samuel 2, 7, in the middle of Hannah's prayer. You can read 1 Samuel 2. It's a beautiful prayer by Hannah. And in verse 7, she says, the Lord makes poor and rich. Concise language with profound 
meaning. You see, this there is only one qualification for being rich. And that is that God made it happen. That pretty much blows away the overwhelming conventional wisdom that someone with tremendous wealth is special, smarter, or morally superior than everybody else. Or that poor people are inherently weak, immoral, lazy, and inferior. Either of those analyses, both of those views, cut the providence of God out of the equation. See, we understand the providence of God. Your financial status is the product of the providence of God and only the providence of God. You should not be judged by your wealth, nor should you judge others by their wealth or their lack of it. I've been dealing with people and their money in various forms for about 40 years. And I observed a long time ago that a client's income has no predictive value regarding their personality, their character, or their spiritual condition. That observation has been confirmed over and over and over. And of course it has. Because God makes rich and poor for his own reasons and his own purposes. So the faithful steward is not obsessed with money, is not obsessed with the pursuit of money and the detailing of money, and the steward is trusts in the providence of God. Right behind that, a faithful steward of God's money is content Content, faithful stewardship of money involves a calm peace and a resolve driven by contentment. You see, the chase for money has never produced contentment. If you can, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I want to show you some uh, sarcastic humor, which you can find a lot of in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, I love this verse, the context you can look at later, it all supports and comes down to verse 19. We're talking about contentment here. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Does that sound like something you would hear at church? Let's examine that. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. How many of you have ever had a meal that was very enjoyable? Amen, right? Didn't have butter in it, did it? Never, right. But really, is a meal for enjoyment? No. What's a meal for? Nourishment, so you don't die. So you stay alive. That's what meals are for. Does wine make life merry? Well, (laughs) it can make you think life is merry, doesn't it? Alcohol and drugs, the leading reason why people abuse alcohol and drugs is because they want to feel like life is merry. But is life merry? Sometimes. But if life is merry, is it because of wine? No. So 
Okay, the meal, is the meal for enjoyment? No. Does wine make life merry? No. Because guess what? When the effects of the wine wear off, life is life, isn't it? And then the next statement is, money is the answer to everything. The obvious conclusion is, if the meal is not really for enjoyment and wine doesn't make life um, merry, is money the answer to everything? No. Money doesn't produce contentment. Never has, never will. It's not why we use money. Money is the means to exchange what we have for something we either need or we want. That's it. Money or more of it never guarantees contentment. And the love of money, the Bible tells us, in several places produces only discontentment. Hebrews 13.5 says it really concisely. It's in, a, in that passage. Um, I love Hebrews 13 because the first six verses is Christian ethics all packed into six verses. And verse five, in the middle of all of that says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Contentment is being free from the love of money. Do you want to be content? Don't love money. It's that simple. There's a contrast. The love of money versus contentment, they don't go together. And you can read quotes from rich people all day long. I searched it on the internet and gave up because there was too many and you've heard them all anyway. At the end of the day, there's always more money to get. There's never satisfaction in chasing money. Turn to Philippians 4. I want to give you some wisdom from Scripture, some truth from the Bible about contentment. How do you get contentment when it comes to finances? Because I know some of you, you're hearing me say it, you understand it, but you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I am not content. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. I don't speak from want, says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. That is a phenomenal passage. It is loaded. It's a whole Friday night by itself. I'm not going to spend the whole Friday night on that. We don't have time. But there's some principles here I want to draw out really quickly. One is that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. I have learned to be content. Life will present lots of circumstances to train and test your level of contentment. And he's learned to be content in whatever circumstances. What is he talking about? What circumstances? Well, he says it, I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In other words, contentment doesn't come from whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other. Contentment comes from you being content. In the midst of humble means and prosperity, and I have news for you, some of you will be prosperous 
and some of you will always be in humble means. Remember the providence of God. And some of you will be prosperous and you will lose it all. You will slide down that hill from prosperity to humble means. And contentment in the midst of that is learned. Live in humble means or you live in prosperity, it's the same life. You're the same person, same rules, same realities of life. I promise you those realities don't change. You have the same obligations, nothing changes, and you and I are called to learn to be content in all circumstances. So not only is a steward content in all circumstances, their character and their integrity is unchanged by those circumstances. Humble means, same. Same character. Prosperity, same character. Faithful. Faithful steward. And that takes us to our next point, that a faithful steward of God's money is above reproach. Above reproach. Integrity. Faithfulness. Fidelity to his master in the handling of money and in the same way as with every other area of life. Regardless of how much money you have or don't have, a faithful steward is above reproach. If you turn in your Bibles to Job, Job chapter one, I want to illustrate what we're talking about here. Job chapter one, we're only going to look at a few verses but it's pretty profound. In Job chapter one, verse one, there was a man in the land of Uz. I'm probably not saying that right. There's Hebrew scholars here that could tell me how to say that, but I'm just gonna say Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, just let me pull over for a minute and make an observation. How many of you would love to be described that way? By God. That's a description from God. Amazing, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. His name wasn't Jesus. His name was Job. He was a sinner. But the overall description of his character And his integrity is pretty amazing. That's who he was. Verse two and three describe what he had. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Verse one, who he was. Verse two and three, what he had. And verses four through 19 describes the loss of everything described in verses two and three. And the question is, what happened to who he was in verse one? You can read verses four through 19. You'll see the whole drama play out. He was an extraordinarily wealthy man. He was a family man. He was a success by any measure. In fact, the Bible describes him as the greatest of all the men of the East. Not only did he have extraordinary wealth, which we don't measure wealth by the number of sheep, camels, and oxen, do we? Back then they did. 
And in the midst of all of that, he was, he was extraordinarily wealthy. He was very blessed and he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And it all gets taken away from him in a series of tragic events. What was Job's response to the loss? Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and whined. Is that what it says? What did he do? He worshiped. He said, naked I've come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord God gave and the Lord God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was content. He was above reproach. Let's go back to verses one through three. A description of who he was and what he had. God took away everything he had and guess what? Who he was never changed. Not only was he content in humility and in prosperity, but he maintained his integrity. He was above reproach. Verse one, that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Verse 22, at the end of all of this, what's the description of Job? Verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He was the same guy in wealth and in poverty. God's steward of money is above reproach with a lot, with a little. And all the stuff that happens going down that hill from prosperity to humility and then back up that hill from humility to prosperity, the man never changes. And by the way, you can read later in Job, God restores everything. You show me a person who's dishonest, shifty, aggressive, sinful, And how money is handled, and I'll show you a person who is marked by that same characteristics in every area of life. And the opposite is also true. You show me somebody who has no integrity, they're dishonest, they're untruthful, they're unreliable, they're self-centered or lacking integrity, and I can describe to you exactly how they handle their money. And you don't have to be a forensic accountant to do it. It all goes together. Money is a reflection. The use of money is a reflection of your moral character. Someone who is honest and above reproach and faithful and reliable in other areas of their life will be the same way with the money that God has given them to manage. So a faithful steward is not obsessed with money. They trust in the providence of God. They're content. They have integrity in all of their life. And then finally, a faithful steward of God's money has ambition to acquire money. They have ambition to acquire money. Well, I cannot judge another person by their net worth, nor should I. You and I can and must do so regarding their ambition about acquiring money or their lack of ambition because it is a matter of obedience. A steward of the Lord's money understands that he or she has the duty and even the obligation to acquire money. This is different than the ambition to get rich. 
You live in an era in a political environment where the big lie is that the government's going to provide the money that you need. I don't know if you understand that's the culture we're in now. And that might suffice for a while. History says that's short-lived. Because in God's economy, you and I are expected to acquire money through effort, through work. Not to get rich, not to pursue wealth, but to meet the God-given obligations of life. A faithful steward does not just maintain what he or she has, we must also earn money. There's responsibilities each of us has that in this economy require the acquisition of money. And that acquisition is based on work, not on the charity of others, the welfare of government, or through theft, embezzlement, or other means that are rooted in the love of money or laziness. So why do I say we must acquire money? Well, I want to give you a list of five things the Bible says we should use our money for, and implicit is in that is that this is a list of why we must acquire money. This is why you must work. I must work. Number one, reason to acquire money in the Bible is that we're called to provide for ourselves and for our family. This is the most basic expectation. This is closely linked to work, as I've said. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes clear that man and woman were created to work. And before the fall, that work was pure joy, pure reward, not required for anything other than to be obedient and to receive the blessing and joy of working. Food, clothing, and shelter were provided, but starting in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, the curse pronounced on this earth, work was forever connected to providing for yourself and for others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 12 talks about this whole issue. It addresses God's economy that was established in the Garden of Eden. And the main, the bottom line is this, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to what? Eat. You all know that verse. Have you ever thought about the obligation you and I have, the ambition we are to have to work, to earn money so that we can be in obedience to that principle? Let me connect the dots. In God's economy, you work to earn money and you earn money to acquire food. You acquire food to provide for yourself and others. That's the same with clothing and a place to live. Obviously, some cannot work, by the way, and are dependent on the kindness and provision of others, and we understand that. We live in a country that is so wealthy that it provides for those in that condition who cannot work. But the burden is, if physically possible, that you and I are to provide for ourselves, to earn the money to do that. That is to be our ambition. Proverbs twelve eleven says, he who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Proverbs 21, 25, the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. We don't know that in this country yet. But a lazy person in some countries will starve. 
That's God's economy. We're to provide for ourselves and our family. We're to work hard to do that and to prepare now that should the Lord bring you a spouse and children, you can do that or not. You and I must work to acquire money. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. We should have that ambition, first of all, to provide for ourselves and our family. The second reason we're called to have an ambition to acquire money is to save for the future. A faithful stewardship of money involves acquiring money so that you can save for the future, so that you can provide for yourself and your family in the future. Proverbs 6 6 to 11, I know you know this, you've heard this. Go to the ant, O sluggard. This is a father talking to his son. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest, setting aside for the future. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. We are to have ambition to acquire money today to set aside for tomorrow. Proverbs thirty twenty five talks about those ants again. We had ants invade our houses this summer. We spent more effort trying to kill those ants, didn't we? We won. We won. But those small little creatures, ants are not a strong people, Proverbs 30, 25 says, but they prepare their food in the summer, and when they invaded our pantry, I knew exactly what they were doing. (laughs) They were saving for the future, and I was going to stop that. They're wise, but they're not strong, which is why I won. You see, the race between the wise and the strong always goes to the wise. Saving for the future is wise. Saving for the future is biblical. Saving for the future is good stewardship of the money that God has given you. And it drives an ambition to acquire money, to work. Proverbs 21.20 says, There's a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. I don't want you to miss that. I'm going to read it slowly. I want you to hear this. It's a profound proverb that says that a foolish man consumes everything he gets right now. A wise steward acquires money to satisfy current needs and future needs. Let me read it again. There is a precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise. In other words, that sounds like the trappings of wealth, doesn't it? But it's not the pursuit of wealth. It is saving for the future. The next sentence says, a foolish man swallows it up. A faithful steward doesn't spend every dollar they get. They live below their means in simple terms. Why? To save for the future. So, there's providing. There's saving for the future. Third reason to acquire money is to pay what you owe. 
to pay what you owe. The Bible makes abundantly clear that a faithful steward pays back money that has been borrowed, that a faithful steward meets promises. If a steward, if someone handling money makes a promise involving money, they keep it. Sometimes there's a need to borrow money. I need to provide for myself, but I can't do it unless I can get to work, right? I need a car. We live in an economy that, so far anyway, allows for the free trade of goods and money. You can go out to a car lot and borrow money today to get a car so that you can earn a living, including an amount needed to pay back the loan. You all get that principle, don't you? That is part of the ambition to earn money, to work. And by the way, some people say that debt is evil. Debt is wrong. Debt is just like money. It's amoral. I don't think, I've said this in probably in front of thousands of people now, Anne's smiling. She knows what I'm about to say. I don't think you can show me from the Bible that debt is wrong. But you can show me from the Bible that you can be really foolish with debt. And you can sin by making a promise to pay that money back and then not paying it back. You and I need to be ambitious in acquiring money so that we can pay what we owe. The morality of debt is in how you obtain it, how you use it, and how you repay it. Debt exposes things just like money. Debt exposes your integrity, your honor, and your diligence. It demonstrates your wisdom and maybe your foolishness. A faithful steward is careful, careful about borrowing money, but once the money is borrowed, they are intent on paying it back. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 5, says, It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of a messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness, rather fear God. That's talking about making a vow before God. Applies to promises. The words that come out of your mouth and once you take on debt, you are in a binding contract to pay it back. And you don't get to look back like it says in Ecclesiastes 5 and say, it was a mistake. Gee, I can't pay it back. I just made a mistake. Psalm 15, verse 4, the man of integrity, it talks about he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Your accountability is not to me and not to anybody, not to Um, your parents, not to a discipler. Your accountability is to your word. A faithful steward pays back what they owe because they said they would. Fourth reason to acquire money is to pay your taxes. There's a fun topic. Or maybe a not so fun topic, but it's pretty simple. This is an area that's a challenge as our government moves away from its role as a minister for good and towards doing and supporting and funding evil. The question of whether there's a question 
with some as to whether we should be paying taxes? The simple answer is yes, pay your taxes. There may be some here who owe back taxes. I've talked to some of you. A faithful steward of their money is committed to earning the income so that those taxes can be paid. That's a faithful steward. Whatever the mistake was in the past, there's a commitment to paying those taxes. Romans 13, five to seven talks about this. It says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to the government, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due. And and Christ, when he was here on earth, it's pretty hard to fathom this. The God of the universe, he created all of us. He appointed the governments. And when he was here, he submitted to that government. In Luke 20, he was asked the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 23 of Luke 20 says, but Christ detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius whose picture is on it, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If God didn't take the position that you didn't have to pay your taxes, neither can you and I. We have to have the ambition to acquire money, enough money to provide, to save, to pay debt, pay back debt, and to pay taxes. Our money is not our own. The money is from the Lord, and some of it belongs to the government. We just have to accept that. And then the fifth reason to acquire money. Fifth reason we are called to have an ambition to acquire money is so that we can give it away. So that we can give it away. A steward of the Lord's money is concerned with supporting the church and those around them who are in need. In fact, there are promises related to giving it away that a faithful steward is very aware of. There's also commands. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. It is a simple issue of obedience. I'm not trying to balance the budget of Grace Church here tonight. I'm trying to help us understand that as a faithful steward, one of our obligations is to work, to have the ambition to work, to make money so that we can give it away. And one of our obligations is to give to the church on a regular basis. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about the other side of that. Verse 6, now I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. A faithful steward has an ambition to make money cheerfully so that they can cheerfully give money, give it away. In Acts chapter 2, the new church is born. And what did the Christians act like? It says they began selling their property and possessions in verse 45 and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. 
That is not the biblical um, proof text of communism, by the way. That is not a command to gather everybody's money, pool it, and give it away. It is a description of what Christians do. You understand the difference? That is not a command. It is a description. That in the early church, what Christians did is if someone was in need, they would even sell property if they needed to, to give their money away. 1 John 3, 17, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? It's what Christians do. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow and I will give it when you already have it with you. It's an ambition to have money, not to build wealth, but to give it away. Formally to the church, to those within the church who are in need, to those without, from outside the church who have need. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes other will himself be refreshed. Proverbs 28.27, He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many cares. You want to be generous? You have to make money to be generous, unless you're in Congress, and then you can be generous with everybody else's money. You and I are called as stewards of God's money to have the ambition to work so that we have enough to give it away, to bless others. So provide for yourself and your family, save for the future, pay debt, pay taxes, give it away. How do you know how much to do? What if I owe taxes? Do I have to pay the taxes or do I give money to the church? There's all kinds of questions about money, aren't there? We could probably go into Q&A right now and spend an hour or two hours talking about those kinds of choices. That takes us to our last point. A faithful steward of God's money prays. Faithful steward of God's money is not obsessed with money. He trusts in providence. He's content. He or she is above reproach. God's steward is ambitious to make money, not to, not out of the love of money, but out of a desire to be obedient and use money the way God tells us to use money to provide for ourselves and our family, to save for the future, to pay taxes, to pay what we owe and to give it away. And how do you do all of that? A faithful steward of God's money prays. James chapter 1 tells us to pray for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What a promise. Do you want wisdom in handling your personal finances? Yeah, you can come talk to somebody about that. But the first thing you should do is to ask for wisdom because it says right there, it will be given to you. If you can, last passage, turn to Proverbs chapter 30 and we'll close with this passage. There's a profound prayer about money 
in Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 is written by Agur, who is likely a student of Solomon. And it's especially unique. Proverbs 30 is a very unique chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters, maybe my favorite chapter in Proverbs. It's blunt and it's practical. And it describes me at the beginning, as I recall. Surely I am more stupid than any man, in verse 2. He immediately had me right there. He had me at stupid. Sometime you should read Proverbs 30. It's, It's phenomenal. But he writes a profound and simple prayer that is incredibly helpful and practical when you consider the stewardship of money and your personal finances, and it's a great way to wrap up tonight. Verse seven, two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. This is important. He says, don't refuse me. Verse eight, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. There it all is. This one prayer ties this all together. It links money with character. It links the window into your core character and what your view of God is by how you handle money. The entire premise of the prayer is that it's God's money and that it will give evidence to the heart. There is a trust that God knows exactly how much to give him. You see that? Neither poverty nor riches. That's the trust in the providence of God. God knows exactly what I need. His concern is for his character, not for his bank balance. Honesty versus deception. Keep deception and lies far from me that I not be in want and steal. This is, this is the core of what money exposes is your character. He doesn't pray for more of it. He prays that his handling of money would expose a good heart and a good character that does not profane the name of his God. There's a humility here. God's in control. Give me the food that is my portion. That is a recognition that my food isn't because I got a bonus at work and I make um, all that money. It's because God provided the work. God provided the money. He provided the food. God makes rich. And God makes poor. You see, money is a barometer of spiritual condition. Agar recognizes the human tendency to allow wealth to feed the sin of arrogance and self-sufficiency. He talks about self-deception. Don't fall into that trap. He also recognizes the human tendency to allow poverty to motivate the sin of theft. And the ultimate self-deception and pride of questioning God. If you think you're poor and it causes you to question God, you need to pray the prayer of Agar. His greatest concern is profaning the name of God. A faithful steward of God's money wants what what Proverbs 3 says, where it says, honor the Lord from your wealth. 
Don't profane the name of God. So, a faithful steward of money is not an accountant or a bookkeeper or a money manager. It is a person who isn't obsessed with it, who trusts in the providence of God, who's completely content with the providence of God, who's above reproach in all areas of life, of which money is just one piece. Steward of God, when it comes to money, is ambitious about earning money in order to be obedient, understanding the connection between work, money, and using money the way God tells us to use money, and a steward, a faithful steward of God's money prays. I hope that's helpful. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray desperately that I might not have gotten in the way of that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would encourage each of us, teach us, confront us, add to what's been said, subtract from what's been said to the extent it's a distraction. Lord, I pray, we pray here together tonight that we would walk out of here different for having been here, that even if you're the only one that knows what we do with our money, that your name is not profaned by what you see, that it reflects our hearts, our desire to be obedient. And Lord, we pray along with Agra that you would keep deceptions and lies far from us. Give us neither poverty nor riches. Feed us with the food that is our portion, that we would not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or that we would not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Lord, we ask all of this knowing that you know all, that you are our Lord and our Savior. Lord, it's our desire to honor you through our obedience in Christ's name. Amen.